Thank you, Jakey and Ron. I had to ask Ron's surname just a moment ago, and I have Ron in class. I had Ron two years of class, and I mean, he's in my Tuesday morning men's class, and I had to ask him, what's your surname? That's, that's a sign of, that, <laughs> that's a sign of 86 years, I guess. John Moore is our speaker uh, this afternoon, and uh, John uh, has got a, on my cheat sheet, uh, a big list of things that I'm not going to read to you. John would say, don't do that, they'll probably fall asleep or something like that, but really, uh, John has uh, done so many great things. John is uh, working with us here at Bear Valley as a staff member. He's not, he and Carla are not here all the time because he's involved in the work in Israel and trips to Israel. And if you want more information about that, you need to talk to John. But John uh, comes to us with, uh, with some great experience uh, in teaching and preaching and uh, school of preaching. Uh, and uh, he really adds a, a great perspective to our staff here at Bear Valley. We appreciate so much his uh, love for Israel and the history behind Israel and the history that he reveals. And uh, right now he's in the class right next to me and I'm trying to teach Isaiah. And he's teaching maps and geography and I keep hearing every once in a while. In fact, the girls the other night, you had things written on the board and they said, what are those words up there? And it was like Ajalon and Lakesh and Shephelah. Shephelah really threw them off. They didn't know quite what Shephelah was. And so I had to stop my class and explain to them, well, this is John's history, geography, and uh, the, the maps. Uh, without getting the maps out. But John just does such a great job. Think about John and Carla both, is that they have such a, a sweet spirit about them. You just will not be able to keep from loving John and Carla. They're just some of the sweetest people around and they really exemplify the Christian character. And so uh, love John and Carla dearly and uh, we're so glad that he's able to be with us this afternoon and come and preach the word, John. Preach the word! Thank you, Dave. We, we feel the same way about you and Barbara Ann and appreciate this congregation and all of you being here today. Uh, this is one of those rare times when I don't want to be in here, I tell you, because I'd rather be over there here in Wayne Berger, uh, preach the word of God. I love Wayne and uh, missing that opportunity, but I'm glad that you're here today. In 1987, my brother and I were walking down in a field near the Blanco River in San Marcos, Texas. And we've been down there hitting some golf balls. And, and uh, like is the occasion, one of mine became rather errant and went way off down near the river. And I walked down there, and uh, as I'm looking for my golf ball, I just happened to look up, and I, I see this sort of strange... 
I don't know, shady looking thing in the water and then it began to kind of rise up a little bit and as it would rise up, I realized it was a body. <laughs> it was a body. Yeah, it was a guy floating face down. His leg had been hung on the back of some sort of uh, limb or something. And so as the current was moving him through, he was kind of going up and down, up and down. He'd been there uh, at some point, uh, probably about a week or so, because just a week prior to that, there'd been a huge flood that had come through the San Marcos area. And uh, that poor soul lost his life when he was trying to cross over a low water crossing. He couldn't swim. It was terrible. A lot of people were hurt. A lot of property was destroyed during that flood. I, I remember quite well that night. The claps, you know, thunder, right? And the, the lightning bursts and the wind. And I'm sure all of us have experienced some sort of storm like that at one point or another. And, uh, you know, sends us really looking for shelter and sort of hunkering down. And I, I get to thinking about some of the storms that uh, I've experienced and then storms that I've read about in the Bible. And I'm sure that the biggest storm and flood that comes to mind is in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood of Noah's age. And then there are other types of storms, storms that Jonah encountered or the Apostle Paul um, there's even a storm mentioned in 2 Kings that uh, claimed uh, the several ships that King Jehoshaphat had put together and they were going to go off on a gold-seeking mission and they, they came up to Abayan Gezer and, and they lost all of their ships. Storms. Several of them mentioned in the Bible. There's one storm here in Psalm 29, our text for today, that we want to spend some time talking about. The God above the storm is the lesson title that has been given to me. And if you've ever read that psalm and thought about it geographically, as of course I'm going to think about it that way, and my, my love for geography and archaeology, I began thinking about that and seeing that that storm really mimics what actually happens a lot in the area of Palestine or in modern-day Israel. A storm will sort of begin out over the Mediterranean, over the many waters that are probably uh, the references there in Psalm 29. And then it says it moves inward to the cedars of Lebanon or to the area of Lebanon. And then it moves down to what is probably the wilderness of the Negev, south of the Negev Basin. And it's on this path and along this path that is going down, it's destroying things. Now, some take it to mean that that's probably a, an a image or a picture of the destructive forces of the natural world and what God is doing to punish uh, the people of Syria, maybe some of the enemies down in the wilderness area, like those who were of Edom or, or others that had come up in that direction and had been menaced to the people of God. And some, some commentators interpreted that way. I, I don't necessarily, but I don't have a problem with that. But that's the, the path that that storm takes. It's a path of destruction. Now, probably some in this audience this morning or this afternoon are experiencing a storm of their own. And if you haven't, you have in the past, or if you haven't in the past or not now, you're going to. It's a part of life. Speaking metaphorically, of course, I think about illness. I think about people who are maybe even this very hour struggling in a marriage. And they've discovered something about their mate 
and what was once sort of sailing the calm waters of life have now erupted into a huge, huge storm that threatens to sink their boat. Um, I think about people right now that are struggling with cancer, people who've lost their jobs. Now, I know we've been through a, a very difficult period over these last two years, but the truth is, before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic, there are people that are still hurting. There are people that are struggling, and they will continue to struggle. We live in a fallen world, and there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain that comes from this fallen world. Sin has permeated the lives of our family members, of the people in society, and at every turn, there's reason to feel this pressure and this struggle and this anxiety over what we're seeing. World events, things going on in the economy, a lot of that weighs on us, and we, we experience these storms in life. Well, Psalm chapter 29, I believe, is going to help us to know what to do to weather those storms. How do we weather them? Because that's really what we want to leave you with today. It's not the reality of the storm, but what we do to weather the storm. How we make it through. Now, it doesn't mean that we're always going to be able to eliminate the storms in our life. We're not. But how do we ride out the storm? How do we keep our boat from sinking? How do we cope with the trials and the difficulties of life. I, I love Psalm 29 because as you read down through the text here, you get down to verse number 11. Take a look at it. The very last verse. And the, the, the emphasis, or rather maybe the, the desire or the wish for the recipients of this particular psalm is this. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Amen. God wants you to have strength in the times of furious storms. God wants you to be at peace, yes, even during a storm. So how do we make that happen? What do we do as we begin to think about that? Well, first of all, I want us to just take a look at verses 1 through 2. How does the God of the storm that is referenced in these passages here in Psalm, how does the God of the storm help us to overcome the storm? Well, in verses 1 and 2, let's take a moment to read it. The psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, there's a word that's repeated here three times. You see it? I don't know what it is in all the other translations, but in the ESV, it is the word ascribe. And then in verse 2, we come to the word worship. The word ascribe means to acknowledge something. Not to confer on someone something that maybe they don't have or that we're just going to simply say, uh, I love you so much that I'm going to say this about you and it's not true. But rather, the word ascribe has reference to our understanding what quality or characteristic God has and that we then therefore verbally acknowledge it. We say what is true. We acknowledge here what the psalmist says about God and notice now that he is full of glory. 
The motivation for worship, and we'll talk more about worship here in just a moment, the importance of it during our times of trial and difficulty, is that God is so great and so marvelous and so glorious that we can't help but want to glorify Him. Now, the tendency, I think, when we are struggling with problems is to turn inward is to begin to think about what we're experiencing and what's going on in my life and the hurt that I have. And and certainly we're not suggesting that we have to ignore that, but rather what we want to do is not turn inward, but go outward and focus our thoughts on Almighty God. And why is that? Why does worship allow us to do that? And how can worship help us to do that? Well, in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, in a familiar passage I know to a lot of you, we find that Moses, after having experienced, at least the people of God did, the wrath of God when they had made the golden calf there in the wilderness, there was punishment, there was retribution. And then we read in Exodus 33 that God told Moses, I'm not going to go up with you uh, to the land of promise. And of course, that greatly distressed Moses, as you can imagine. And Moses was told by God, uh, Moses, I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. But of course, Moses, after having experienced this hardship and this difficulty with the people of God, he, he needed a little more affirmation. And so what does he do? He has to see the glory of God. And you know the story. God allows him to come up on the mountain and God holds him in the cleft of the rock as God passes by. He's allowed, Moses is, to see just the tail end of the glory of God. Now the word glory often comes from a word that means heavy or the idea portrayed here is radiance or brilliance. That God is so powerful and so great, the very essence of his nature is that it's described or he is described with this sort of glow that comes from him. It's sort of like looking at the sun. You try to look at the sun, you can't do it. It's so There's so much energy and so much power, but you can turn away and you can see the effects of it even though you're not looking directly at it. And that's kind of how I have it pictured here with Moses as God passes by. He allows Moses to just see just a little bit the tail end of the glory of God and what happens as a result of it. He's changed, isn't he? His face shines. And when he comes down from the mountain, the people of God want him to put a veil over his face because they're, you know, they see it shining. He's been in the presence of God. He's seen God. And so certainly the glory of God has reference to that literal brightness that, that emanates from his throne. Uh, the Hebrew writer described it, the effulgence, as a good King James word in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. But look at Exodus 34, verse 6. Because to me... This is really the core of what the glory of God is all about and what it's going to do and why worship is going to be important here in just a moment as we see during our storms in life. Exodus 34, verse 6, As the Lord passed before him, what was proclaimed? The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will, who will by no means clear the guilty. 
Now, in that one passage, Moses is allowed, in my estimation, in my view, to understand the very essence and the nature of God's total being, who he is. That he is both a God of justice, that he can in no wise clear the guilty, that he's going, in fact, to punish wickedness and wrongdoing. But yet this God of justice is also a God of mercy. He loves and he is forgiving. He is a God of steadfast love that ultimately reveals that love in the cross because at the cross he punishes wrongdoing yet also saves the sinner. I think once we come to see more and more of who God is and we focus on his nature that we can't help as we see the glory of God ourselves want to glorify God for all that he is. And in the midst then of our worship, when we are facing a trial and a difficulty and we find ourselves in the midst of the storm and maybe we don't feel much like worshiping, we begin to think about who God is and all of the essence of His being and all that is created and all that He's done and I root myself in that understanding of His nature, I am filled with a desire to want to glorify Him. Amen. And when I do, here's what's happened. Here's what happens. And here is why this is so important. Worship demonstrates to us that we recognize that there is a power greater than ourselves. That this world is not all that there is. And that the harm that we're experiencing and the hurt that we are facing is truly a part of this fallen world and that there's something out in terms of the spiritual that is everlasting, that is long, that is indeed a part of a promise that God has made us. When we worship God, we come not only to demonstrate a dependency on something greater than ourselves, but more importantly, and this is what I want you to really hone in on this, this afternoon, it helps us to see the big picture. And that's what we need in a time of storm, is to be able to see beyond, you know, right now at this little spot in time and whatever it is we're facing to something far greater, something bigger. I don't know if you were able to be in here when uh, Michael was talking about, I think today was the day on Psalm 73. I wasn't here. But Psalm 73 is a powerful psalm that teaches us about a man who had lost sight in the midst of his problems of when things were going badly for him. He had lost sight of what? This big picture that we're talking about. He was envious of all the people that seemingly were doing well, the, the evil people. And maybe some of those that had even exercised some evil upon him. And so he says, my feet had begun to slip. And as he became a backslider and became envious at them and angry about it all, he said, to make matters worse, I, I wanted to tell the people of God, but I couldn't. I, if this is the same Asaph in Chronicles that's a priest, I understand his predicament, right? Because as preachers, sometimes we're a little 
little hesitant and reluctant to talk to other people about our problems and then maybe we're hurting and then we're sad and so here it is he had to turn inward to it all right isn't that what we do sometimes when we face problems we we just bottle them up inside and we turn inward and we don't talk to people about them but as you make your way about halfway down through that text of Psalm 73 it says until I went into the sanctuary of God and saw therein then I understood In other words, when he came into the presence of God, as we're talking about here, and he saw the nature of God and the salvific nature of God, as well as the justice of God, and he heard, no doubt, the hymns of praise being sung at the temple itself, and the message that rung from those songs, how that he began to see not just life right now, but life in terms of eternity. And he began to understand, he said, their end. And their end was ultimately this, that they were going to be destroyed. That God in due time would handle it all. That things would work out. That God's on a different timetable than we are. I think about that a lot. I think about that, for example, with the people in the Bible, like Joseph. I mean, there's a storm right there. When your brothers sell you into slavery, when there is family dissension that we sometimes, you know, we think we've got problems. What about Jacob's family, his children? Man, you talk about a dysfunctional family. You talk about a storm. I mean, have any of you been, you know, trafficked, sold into to slavery? Anybody had your brother try to kill you? Don't raise your hand if that's, you know, maybe you had. Probably felt like that, you know. You really did, all right? Yeah, can you? I mean, that's a terrible storm, right? To think about that kind of evil being perpetrated on you and then being sold into slavery, taken away to a foreign land. I mean, far away where they speak a different language when you can't just pick up the cell phone and call back home and say, hey, I'm all right. And then you finally get into a situation where, okay, maybe I can, you know, make a living. Maybe I can, I'm in a good position here, Potiphar's house. But then you're accused of, you know, sexual impropriety. And you're cast into prison. I mean, it gets pretty bad, doesn't it? This is a storm that went on for years and years and years for Joseph. But ultimately, God redeemed that terrible situation. God made good on that because it meant the salvation of his descendants and his family as they came and God saved them from that family and brought them to Egypt and they were rescued, which then, of course, preserved that family for the coming of Jesus into the world, by which then we are now recipients of the salvation given to all of us by means of that plan. When we worship, we get to see the whole big picture. We get to see the authority and the power and the majesty of glory and the glory of God. We get to understand the end of the wicked. But when we worship, it teaches us. Ephesians 5.19 We sang a song just a moment ago, Blessed Assurance. We sing songs about the cross of Christ. We sing songs that I'm going to refer to you here in just a moment that ought to help us. Yes, worship teaches us about God's glory, about His plan. It teaches us, but it also soothes our soul. I cannot stress this enough because I personally 
experienced this in my own life about how worship helped me during a time of crisis. I know like a lot of you, 2020 was a really difficult year. In March of that year, Carla and I found ourselves in Israel when the whole world was falling apart and we had another group coming uh, after that group was going to leave and all of them had paid for their trip to go to Israel. I mean, we're talking about you know, over $100,000 of money that was tied up and now their trip is canceled and the people over there are telling us, uh, well, sorry, we can't give your money back. We'll, we'll be able to you know, give them a trip in the future, but as far as a refund, I'm not really sure that's going to work out and we don't know. So that weighed heavy on us, but we thought, okay. Then a little later on that same year, my dad died of cancer. A little later on that year, a mentor in the faith of mine passed away. A little on, later on that year, my mother suffered a severe stroke, and she passed away a week later. Uh, by the way, that, that brought home to me a whole new understanding of loved ones that have passed away. I just I uttered that on many occasions in my sermons about the things that we that hurt us and bother us, right? You know, and those of you who may be struggling with loved ones that have passed away. You ever said that? And I know you meant it. I know it was an important, sincere prayer, but I, I didn't get it until this until 2020. That was the longest running constant in my life was my mom and dad. Love them was close to them. They were loved ones. And he passed away. And then in late November of 2020, I woke up in a Wednesday morning in an ICU unit, not knowing what was going on, trying to kind of put my mind around, wrap it around what was happening. And Come to find out, it's told to me several times as I couldn't quite get it in my head for a while, that on Sunday morning while I was sitting in the Bible class that my heart had stopped. And I just couldn't believe all the people and the things that occurred on that day to keep me alive. And there's a long story associated with that and all the ways that God worked through people and the power of prayer. But what I want you to understand is that something that continued to sustain me and help me when I was lying there and I couldn't concentrate on even being able to read the Word of God and all these thoughts and you're tethered to all kinds of wires and, and you know, and buzzers going off in the room and people coming in and out and you don't know, you know, they don't even know at the time, what, what, what is wrong with you? We don't understand what's happened to you. Your heart stopped and all we know is it took an hour for us to finally stabilize you to some degree. tell you what my wife did she would pull up hymns of praise on her iPhone and she would put it there by my bed and I would listen to great songs recorded by various brethren songs like in need you don't think that helped me in need of grace in need of love Mercy raining down from high above, in need of strength, in need of peace, in need of things that only you 
can give to me. I'm your child and I am in need. Or the song, I can remember one time because of this song and allowing me to purge some of the emotions that I felt. And I don't know if you remember, but you know, your own children can't come to visit you at the hospital at that time. They only allowed my wife in during the day. You feel pretty alone. But of course, as a Christian, we're never alone. Amen. And the song, Only a Holy God, who else commands all the host of heaven? The God above the storm, who else commands all the host of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outside outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. And then this, this verse, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. Only my holy God. So come and behold in the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. I'm telling you, hymns of praise touch your heart. They take your focus away from the fear and the anxiety that you're feeling. And it wasn't just finally after, you know, being two and a half, two weeks in the hospital. When I came home and, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, your chest starts hurting. They, they had broken my ribs and cracked my sternum from the CPR. And, and, but I didn't know, is it my ribs? Is it the aching there? Is the pain, you know, the nerve damage that is shooting through my body? Or is my heart about to go into another arrhythmia? You, you don't know. And you talk about the anxiety, not because so much that I was afraid about where I may or may not go. I was confident in my love for the Lord and where I would be. But still, the physiological part of you that says, Okay, what's going to happen? And where, where's my wife going to find me? Is she going to find me on the, you know, on the floor of the, of the bathroom? It's already traumatic enough for her and my children and everybody else to have to go through. Am I going to put them through that again? A lot of you have been through similar circumstances. And especially at night, it seems worse, doesn't it? It's during those times that I would get out my phone and I would play those songs. I hear that melody. Worship. Thinking about the glory and the greatness and the power of God soothed my soul. Just like I know that Saul wanted his soul soothed. 1 Samuel 16, he asked David to come play for him. Like James 5.13 teaches us that if we're merry, let us sing a song. If we're sad, we pray. So much more about all the elements of worship that we can incorporate into our lives. And people of the world may think that's strange. You know, I'm having difficulty. God, aren't you the one, you know, that's caused this? No, not at all. God's the one that cares and the love loves us. 
But then number two, I want you to look down through the text here, Psalm 29. Not only is it that worship is going to help us during our storms, but in the midst of the storm, what we need to make certain that we are doing is listening to the voice of the Lord. In verses 3 through 9, seven times, seven times the psalmist uses the word or the phrase, the voice of the Lord, 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 the voice of the Lord. What does he want us to remember? The voice of the Lord. Whenever there's a storm going on, who's behind all of this world's power and the strength that exists in the natural world? The Bible tells us about the power of God and the power of His Word. There are a lot of passages. For example, in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, listen to what the psalmist says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brought the world into existence by his very word, by the things that he uttered. In Exodus 19, when God was giving the law on Mount Sinai, he spoke out of that cloud and the people were afraid and there was thundering and there was lightning. All of these references in Scripture that remind us again of how wonderful and glorious the Word of God is. What about John chapter 5 and verse number 29, a well-known passage of Scripture where Jesus says, Truly I say unto you, an hour is coming. And now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man now listen to this do not marvel for an hour is coming in which all that are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come forth those that have done good in the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation God's voice raises the dead. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder and soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. What was it that caused 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost to respond by being baptized for the remission of their sins, by getting into the water and being immersed. Let me tell you what it was. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? You talk about God's word being powerful. It cuts hearts. It brings this world into existence. It causes people to tremble. Isaiah chapter 66 Yes, the Bible tells us about the power of His Word, but then Psalm 29 in particular, look at it, tells us about the power of God's Word, comparing it to a storm. And I think there's good reason for that. Number one, there's good reason for that because of what was going on among the Canaanites at this time. The Canaanites had two major gods. There were a lot of gods. Their major god was Baal, but one of the other gods was a guy by the name of Yom. 
who lived supposedly out on the many waters and on the sea. That's who they paid homage to, to keep them safe as they traveled across the Mediterranean. But then we all know the second God, right? Baal. A number of years ago in Ugarit, there were a, uh, a number of these small clay tablets, I mean, called the Rosh and Ra tablets, that speak about life among the Canaanites and some of their belief systems. And one of the things it mentions about their god, Baal, is that he, they said, was the storm god. He is the, quote, rider of the clouds. He was their fertility god, the one that brought rain. And two ancient depictions of Baal on these huge rock stone monuments, Baal is depicted with a scepter in his hand, and the scepter is a lightning bolt. I think in some ways this is an attack on the Canaanite gods and their religion saying, you want to know who really controls the rain? Who controls the water out on the Mediterranean? It's not Yon, it's not Baal, it is Yahweh. Amen. He's the one. And so not only do I think that this storm in reference to the power of God is used to compare the power of Yahweh to these Canaanite gods, but simply this as well, and that is because of the sheer power of a storm. I know we've witnessed them. We talked about that at the beginning of this. But I got to looking this up, and I was amazed at what I was able to discover about a storm. And in a particular um, typical storm, there are these kilowatt hours that supposedly uh, one is calculated. The sheer power found in a typical storm. Now, not one that's huge and great, but supposedly a typical thunderstorm releases 10 million kilowatt hours of energy. That is equivalent to a 20-ton nuclear warhead. Wow. One storm. Think about that. The tremendous power. Well, I don't think the Israelites, any more than I understand it today, know anything about kilowatt hours. That just kind of goes over my head, right? But I do know they understood the cedars of Lebanon. I do know that as he described this great storm that moved up to the cedars of Lebanon, take a look at Psalm 29 as he talks about this storm. He says the voice in verse 5 of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. Can you just imagine? the Now, now the cedars of Lebanon were referred to many times in Scripture, one of which were those... Uh, trees that were cut down and floated down the Mediterranean and uh, then taken from the area of Joppa on up to the temple to build the great grand marvelous temple of Solomon. Now some of the cedars of Lebanon in this time of when the Bible was written I've read could reach as high as a hundred feet. But if you go there today, you'll see some, not nearly that high, but still large enough, some of them anywhere from six feet to eight feet in diameter. We're talking about sizable trunks, huge, strong trees. They're just sort of broken open like a twig. 
I mean, that's the visual here. God's word is powerful. How powerful is it? Well, it brought the world into existence. It can break the cedars of Lebanon. It can go through Palestine and wreak havoc and shake the wilderness and cause the deer to give birth. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Well, if God's word is powerful enough to do that, I wonder if it's powerful enough to remove some sort of anxiety or fear or problem or struggle or storm in your own life. Amen. We know that it is. Because not only does the power of God exist to be able to bring about literal storms in this world, but it also can calm storms. Amen. Mark chapter 4. And the beautiful, wonderful story of Jesus after a day of preaching, getting into this ship or in the ship after preaching and then moving away from the shore and going across that 7.5 mile wide lake. It's 144 feet deep. And they get out there somewhere, probably in the middle of that. And the storm rushes down off of Mount Hermon and down into that Huma Basin and breaks out into that Sea of Galilee, 695 feet below sea level. And the storm is sort of trapped there and swirls and creates this torrent what the Bible says and our word seismic comes from this a furious and seismic storm and there they are the disciples are in the boat and you remember that they go to the Lord and they say don't you care that we're perishing how can you lie asleep and the Lord says oh ye of little faith and he rises and he rebukes the winds and the waves stop peace be still Aren't we like those disciples? We get into our boat and we sail across the ocean of life and seemingly out of nowhere, we're met with a storm and it seems like our boat is beginning to be threatened as though we were going to sink and maybe we cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Are you asleep? It's then that we need to remember the words of Jesus. Peace, be still. I can calm the storms. I can make the storms. I brought the world into existence with just a few words. Let there be light. And there was light. The voice that raises the dead is also the voice, if we will but allow it as we read and study it today and we meditate upon it during our times of crises and we look carefully into the Word of God and we see all the things that we've been talking about as goodness, as glory, as grace, and the power and how He delivered His people, brought them through the sea, the great sea, or the, uh, the as they were delivered out of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. All of those wonderful stories about the power of God and what He's able to do and I know he can also rid the storms in our life but finally the last section of this in verse 10 about what we can do in the midst of a storm the God above the storm helps us in understanding this we need to remember the flood Notice in verse 10, the definite article is given in most translations. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Most scholars agree on this point that what he's referring to here is the flood of Noah. God delivered his people. 
And that flood, those waters that came and encompassed Pharaoh's armies, those destructive forces that were pursuing God's people, that wanted to kill God's people, that wanted to continue to enslave God's people, God swallowed them up and destroyed the enemies of Israel. Remember the flood. Remember the flood of Noah's age. The flood wherein this world of wickedness that existed and Noah the preacher of righteousness prepared the ark to the saving of his family that water destroyed that world and gave Noah and his family a new beginning and that's what I really want to leave you with today is this in the midst of our storms, what we, I think, more than anything is we need to remember that this could be an opportunity for growth and development. It could be the opportunity for a whole new beginning in our life. That's exactly what Peter refers to in 1 Peter chapter 3. The passage that all of us know, right? Baptism saves us, but really that passage was written to Christians. A passage written to people who were suffering, who were struggling, who were going through some storms in their life like maybe you're going through right now. And what Peter says is, don't you know that baptism separated you from this world? It gives us hope and now we can look forward to the future. And just like Noah and his family, eight souls were saved by water. So we ourselves can be preserved and look forward to something greater and brighter. Yes, remember the flood. Remember how God used the waters to rescue His people, to destroy this world, and turn to Him in faith and live for Him. May God help us to overcome the storms in our life, and He will if we will but let Him. Thank you so much. Amen.